Well, I don't know how many of you have ever seen, or maybe if you have seen, I don't know if you remember the movie Braveheart. This is a movie where Mel Gibson stars as William Wallace, who's this, this Scottish patriot, this, this warrior-type figure. And, and William Wallace, in this movie, he leads his people, the Scots, into revolt against the English and King Edward I. Now, in the movie, he, he's driven by, really, his love for his killed wife, because it's Hollywood and you have to have a love story. But, but what I want to draw your attention to is he's driven by a desire for freedom, Right, that's his, his cry. He, he wants a free Scotland. He wants to oppose the tyranny of the English. And I mention the movie here because there's this scene in this movie. Even if you've never seen the movie, you've probably heard people quote this scene. But it's, it's kind of the climax of the movie, or one of them, uh, where, where this, this character is preparing to lead the Scottish against the English. It's, it's the battlefield. It's this, 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 this clash is going to happen. And the Scottish are clearly overmanned. They're overwhelmed. They, they're the underdogs in here. And so they stand, their ragtag army, and then there's all the, the armed and uh, sophisticated English who have all of, all of the advantages. And so William Wallace rides his horse in front of this line of the Scots, and, and there's, this, there's this interaction. And so after a few uh, interactions, he, he says, you've come here to fight as free men, and free men you are. What would you do with that freedom? Will you fight? And then there's this, this one character, this, this older veteran uh, soldier, who says, fight against that? No, we will run and we will live. Right? So that's, that's what this guy says to William Wallace, the great William Wallace. And, and here, here I'm going to quote what, what he says, what Wallace says in res, response. He says, I fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least for a while. And then this is where it reaches its crescendo. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And he screams freedom and rides off. And then all the soldiers yell, Scotland forever. And it's, it's just this, this, this big... A climax where they're all ready to go and, and go into war, into battle against their enemy. And I mention that here because it's, it's, a, it's a movie that, that's worth watching um, if your parents will let you kids, but, but adults, it's a, it's a good movie. Uh, but I mention it because that speech drives home the point, this simple point, that the battlefield is a place for courage, for, for brave heart, for confidence, the, the battlefield is a place for attack, for action. And, and Wallace is an example of, of many of the best military leader, leaders are those who can move their, their troops to action. And that's what Wallace does there. He, he moves them into action. And it's a rousing speech that he uses to do that. And, and here in, at this point in Ephesians, as we come to Ephesians chapter 6, we come to the Apostle Paul giving his own brave heart speech, if you will. So we're going to read in, in, in verses 10 through 20 of Ephesians 6, Paul is seeking to encourage the Ephesian Christians. And he does so, the reason he needs to encourage them is because they, whether they know it or not, are in the middle of a war. They are engaged in battle. And Paul wants them to know, you are in war and you better take action. That's, that's what he's, he's writing to them to do, especially in this section. 
Notice one, one Puritan named William Gurnall who wrote over a thousand pages on this passage. Right, I have it in my office. It's over a thousand pages on ten verses. Right, so if you ever think I preach long on sections of, of the Bible, just remember William Gurnall. But listen to what he says about, about his, in, in his introduction as he's describing this passage that we're coming to. He says, Now having set everyone in his proper place about his particular duty, as a wise general, after he's arranged his army and drawn them forth into rank and file, Paul makes the following speech at the head of this Ephesian camp, all in martial phrase, as best suiting the Christian's calling, which is a continued warfare with the world and the prince of the world. And so if you think about our context, Paul has given specific orders to husbands and wives and children and parents and servants and masters, and now he calls all of them together as Christian soldiers, he says, now here's our plan of action. Here's our call to action. We're in the midst of a great war. And in the midst of that war, he, he encourages them with our passage. And so Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 10 through 20 here at the outset. So Ephesians 6, and we're going to begin in verse 10 and read through verse 20. So, so here the Apostle Paul. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray this morning. Father, I pray... Christ, I pray, Spirit, I pray, that in, in, the, in the reading of this, your word, in the, in the explaining of this, your word, Lord, that, that we would be built up, Lord, that we would be encouraged to, to stand firm and to be strong in you and in the strength of your might. We thank you that, that you have equipped us and you've made ready for us all that we could ever need in this battle. And so I pray as we, as we look at these verses, Lord, would you, would you encourage us? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as you can tell, as, as, I, as I just read through those verses, the passage is filled with military language, with, with armor language, and Paul calls the Ephesians to take action against their enemies. And so the main point for us here today, the main point of the sermon may simply need to be the fact that every Christian, that every church... I mean, anyone who's set on loving Jesus, on honoring Christ, and, and seeing his gospel transform lives, anyone who, who is on Christ's side, who's experienced the saving grace that Paul laid out in Ephesians 2, right? if that's you, you have an enemy. 
you have an enemy. You actually have many enemies, right? So, so we're going to focus on one here, but, but yourself and the world are, are other of your enemies. But here in our passage, our enemy is someone and something that is often easily avoided. So some of you just need to leave here knowing you have an enemy who is real. You have a real enemy. You see, the, the thing that makes this passage and our enemy easy to downplay or outright ignore is that we aren't on a battlefield. So, so we're not on a literal field lined up across from a clear, distinguishable enemy. Right? That'd be really easy. Oh, I know. They're, they're coming at me with swords, and, and so I, I, can, I can distinguish. They are, they're, they're against me. Right? That's not our situation. Our enemy in this passage is not flesh and blood. Right? They're not things that we can see, which is why it's easy for us to ignore our enemy. It's easy for us to, to forget that we're in a battle or even to neglect the responsibilities that are ours as soldiers. Or even worse, to assume that because we can't see our enemy, there's actually no battle going on. So we have to be aware of those dangers. I want us to see today that the reality of things, the truth behind this text, is that there is a real war going on. And it is a real war between two sides, between good and evil, a war between God and Satan. And we live, whether we realize it or not, in the midst of spiritual warfare. And so that's what this passage is about. And so over these next two weeks, this week and next week, Lord willing, we're going to cover this passage. So we're not going to cover it all today. There's too much here. I, I just want to spend today, this morning, covering verses 10 through 13. And so, so that's all that we're going to, going to set out to, to cover this morning. Because here in, in these verses, they, they really set the stage for all that comes after. And really, verse 10 is the main idea of the entire passage. And so, so that's what we're just going to start these first few verses. Then next week, Lord willing, we'll get into the specifics of, uh, in the details of what it looks like to put on the army and the pieces of the armor. And we'll look at that next week. And so the, the, the main idea, so here's a sentence. I'm going to give you a sentence that's going to be the main idea of the, the sermon before I give you the outline. But the main idea in sentence form is that Christians must stand against Satan and the forces of evil by putting on the whole armor of God. Very simple. Christians must stand against Satan and the forces of evil by putting on the whole armor of God. That's the call. That's the main idea of this whole passage. And so in our outline is going to flesh out all of those parts of that sentence. So, so we'll see our outline is going to be as follows. So in verse 10, we're going to see the Christian's calling, the Christian's calling to stand firm or stand strong. Then, then second, we'll see the Christian's perfection or protection, which, which is actually verse 11 and verse 13. So it's a similar point, emphasis that's made there in both those verses about the Christian's protection in the armor of God. Then finally, in verse 12, we'll jump back to verse 12 and see the Christian's enemy, as Paul explains the enemy. So the Christian's calling, the Christian's protection, and the Christian's enemy. Those are our, our points that we'll walk through. So let's begin there by looking at verse 10, the Christian's calling. And so as we look at verse 10, as I mentioned, it should be clear that the calling of the Christian, the thing that Paul wants the Ephesians and us to do is, verse 10, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. That's the Christian's calling. Verse 10, this call to be strong in the Lord serves as a summary exhortation that stands over the entire passage, and it gets at the heart of what Paul calls us to do. Be strong in the Lord. And so Paul, if, you, if, you, if it doesn't line up on your, on your Bible this way, this is the last chapter in the book of Ephesians. This is the final exhortation that Paul's going to give the Ephesians. And it, it, it's the climax of the book. It's not like, oh, oh, I'm done with all same, I'll need, all I need to say. Let me just add on chapter 6. No, this is, he's been building to this. And so he's calling them, be strong in the Lord. And it's a call that's coming to every Christian. 
And so this be strong in the Lord, the exhortation actually in the original, the, the, the voice that, that this verb is in is a passive voice, which means that, that an idea that, that Paul means to convey here is, is be strengthened. Do you see how that's passive? He doesn't say be strong, do it yourself, but it's rather a passive verb in, in the passive voice that says, hey, be strengthened in the Lord. In other words, Paul's exhortation is not so much a desire for the Ephesian Christians to, to, to strengthen themselves, though they are called to do a lot, but his, his call here at the outset is to be strengthened in the Lord. Be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so in the midst of this spiritual warfare that every Christian finds him or herself, there is one strength that must not be forgotten. And it is not yours. It's not your strength. It's not anyone else's on this earth. The call is to be strong in the Lord and in his might, in his strength. And so the call here is a call to dependence. It's a call to dependence. And so the starting point for any Christian in spiritual warfare is to recognize that God is the one from whom your power, your might, your strength must come. It must not. In fact, it cannot be otherwise. He is the one who has all strength. He is the one who has all power. He is the one we must have on our side. And for the Christian, he is on our side. And because of that, we're able to be strong in him and with his strength. And so as Christians, in this war, we must not forget who is on our side. Yes, we must wage war and take action, but we do so dependent upon him. So be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The reality is, you and I are in a battle that's far too great for us. We are. Our foe is mighty. We must not be guilty of downplaying our great foe. But anyone who's overwhelmed or despairing because of the greatness of Satan and all his forces has already forgotten who is on our side. He is great, yes, but God is greater. And so we can't be overwhelmed or despair because of our foe. God is on our side. Yes, our enemy's too great for us, but we're not alone in this battle that's far too great for us. We have God and his might on our side and at our disposal. So Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This may be a familiar phrase to you. This has a rich background. Maybe you recognize it. I mean, this is what what the Lord told Joshua when Moses dies. They're they're on the verge of invading the promised land. And Joshua takes over Moses' leadership role. And so in Joshua 1, the Lord repeatedly tells Joshua, be strong Be courageous, be strong and courageous, for I am with you. He tells Joshua, be strong, be strong in the Lord, I'm with you. And of course, Joshua would would conquer the promised land. And in 1 Samuel 30, David, so so David had led an excursion and and all him and his men returned to this town of Ziklag. As they get back, they find the Amalekites. While they were gone on, on, on on a mission, all of their wives and children are, are kidnapped and captured by the Amalekites. And David gets back, and, and he's distraught. His, his wives and kids are gone, and everyone else is. And everyone wants to kill David because, hey, look what happened. And in, in 1 Samuel 30, it's, it's recorded that David strengthened himself in the Lord. He strengthened himself in the Lord. And in both these cases, Joshua and David, these mighty leaders of Israel, found sufficient strength from the Lord. They couldn't do it themselves. But the Lord was with them and strengthened them. And and his strength was sufficient for these men to lead 
in victory after victory. And even though our enemy is a bit different, in fact, I'd say our enemy is, a, is much more fearsome than any Amalekite, the strength of the Lord that they found sufficient is the same strength that's sufficient for us today. So, so Paul says, be strong in the Lord. He can do no wrong if his people will be dependent on the Lord's strength in their fight. So that's the call of verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's the call. Well, second, look there, the Christian's protection. Verse 11 and then in verse 13. So having just called the Christians to be strong in the Lord, Paul then, in verses 11 and 13, gives expression of divine enablement and protection throughout the rest of the passage. In other words, the call to be strong in the Lord in verse 10 is followed up with verse 11 and then 13, detailing how the Christian is able to be strong in the Lord. And the reason that the Christian can stand strong is because he or she has been equipped, divinely equipped, with armor. So so as mentioned, God's armor, put on the full armor, the complete armor of God. In other words, so that the Ephesian Christians might not be deceived after calling them to be strong with God's strength, Paul informs them, you must be strong, you must fight with not only God's strength, but with God's protection. You're not sufficient in and of yourself to fight. So be strong in the Lord and put on the whole armor of God. Look there in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so how does a Christian fight in the strength of the Lord's might? How does a Christian gain strength and spiritual power from the Lord? Paul says, by putting on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. That is the way, in fact, the only way that we're able to stand, Paul says, against the schemes of the devil. Now, now next week is going to be specifically looking at putting on the whole armor, but I at least think I should mention here that this armor, the call to put on the whole armor of God, it's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's spiritual armor. It's clothing oneself or equipping oneself with, with spiritual armor. And so, as we'll see, truth and righteousness and faith and salvation and the sword of the Spirit, they're all pieces of this armor that we appropriate spiritually. Okay, so I'm not telling you to, to, to go to, to your, your local store and try and find these, these physical things. It's not, it's not a spiritual, I mean, it's not a physical war. It's a spiritual thing. And we're called to put it on. And actually, if you remember, all the way back in Ephesians 4, Paul called the, the Ephesians to put on the new self. Do you remember he said, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He said, put off the old and put on the new. It's called a, to clothe themselves. It's actually a, a really similar idea here that we find with the armor of God. So to put on the new self and to put on the armor of God are, are really similar in what Paul's calling them to do. And, 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 and how they would, they would obey these commands. There's a lot of overlap. In other words, putting on this armor, being strong in the Lord, in the strength of his, not, his might, is not an overly complicated or altogether different thing than simply pursuing your new identity in Christ. So, so just hear that. This call is not this overly complicated thing that you have to go to school and, and study special, read special books about how do I clothe myself with the armor of God. It's not overly complicated because it, it's overlapping. Paul's point is pursue your new identity with Christ. And so, so don't be confused by this call. It's simply pursuing your relationship with the Lord and, and pursuing who you are in Christ in union with him. That's, that's how, broadly speaking, you put on the whole armor of God. But what is different here, as, as opposed to chapter 4, in this context in chapter 6, is the mention of our enemy. So Paul says, put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the opponent here, whereas in chapter 4, the old self is the opponent, 
which, yes, your old self is an opponent, right? Don't, don't forget that. You are your own worst enemy sometimes. But here in this context, the opponent is Satan himself, the devil, who Paul says is scheming, a scheming enemy. We'll, we'll say more about him as we get to point, point three, who our enemy is. But, but verse 11, he says, put on the whole arm of God that you may be able, be able to stand. And then skip down to verse 13, Again, verse 13, he reiterates what he just said in verse 11. Look down there in verse 13. Therefore, he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And so his emphasis again is on putting on the whole armor of God. That's the phrase, put on. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, that you might stand firm. Again, this is military language. Put on the armor of God that you might stand. Now notice, throughout here, this, there's, there's a repetition of, of standing. They're called a stand. Stand against the enemy. Stand against the attacks. Stand against the schemes, which is significant because what, what Paul isn't saying, what he isn't calling the Ephesians to do is win the battle. Did you notice that? Just stand. Just stand firm. Stand strong. He's not saying, hey, you guys better win. You guys better fight because victory is dependent on how you act. Paul doesn't say be strong in the Lord and defeat Satan. He doesn't say that because Satan has already been defeated. Right? That, that's really important. We'll say more about that at the very end here today, but, but we can't miss that. It's not our job to, to conquer Satan. We can't do that. But the good news is that God already has. Satan is a vanquished foe. And as such, his bite is limited. It's like he's fighting with a sword that's been cut off at the hilt. He's fighting with a, he has no bite. He's shooting blanks. And his, his bite, his power is limited. The fatal blow has already been delivered. Right? His head's been cut off. We're just waiting for the end, for the time when the headless snake stops writhing or wiggling. Right? His head's gone. He, he can't bite anymore. And so until the time where his body stops, stops moving, right, where to stand, Paul says, stand, stand firm. But notice here in verse 13, there is one slight difference from verse 11. And the reason behind putting the armor on in verse 13, it's not so you might withstand Satan. Instead, verse 13, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So I think the idea here. I'll, I'll talk about the evil day in a second, but, but having done all, his point is, you, you better be prepared as you go into battle. And, and I would say he would, he would even imply that it's a daily thing that you, you clothe yourself with this armor, that you put on this armor every day, because, because the battle doesn't end right, until the Lord returns right, and, and completely defeats and, and puts an end to Satan and all the powers. But until that day comes, we're called to put on the armor. It's, it's a daily thing. And so, so we are to do something, to act, right? So, so don't miss that, but, but withstand in the evil day. Some people take that, that phrase, the, the singular evil day, as a reference to an outbreak of evil that's coming at some point in the future. They say, hell, so that's, that's going to be the, the, the increase of evil before the Lord returns. I don't think that's Paul's point here. In fact, it seems best to me to simply understand the evil day in the same way that we understood the, the evil days in 519. So in Ephesians 519, Paul says, hey, redeem the time, make most of the time because the days are evil. 
right? That just that, that life in the world, days are evil. And so I think he's saying here, right, stand firm that you may be able to stand strong in the evil day. So until Christ returns, we're living in a day where Satan and his powers are at work in this world. And until Christ returns, there's a need for us to prepare and do all that we can to stand firm. And we do so, Paul says, by putting on the whole armor of God. That is our protection. That's what we equip ourselves with in this battle. Dependent on God. Which leads finally to our third point. So look there, verse 12. Verse 12, the Christian's enemy. Now, I already saw in verse 11 that the devil schemes, right? He devises plans. He sets out to deceive and destroy. Maybe, maybe you remember Peter's, Peter's description that, that he prowls around like a lion seeking who he might devour. Right? This is Satan. This is what he does. He deceives. He destroys. He seeks to devour you. So, so simply don't downplay the reality that as Christians, we have an enemy who's constantly out to get us. Satan is an enemy. He's your enemy. He's God's enemy. He is an enemy of the gospel. And he is constantly seeking to destroy us. He is not your friend. And he is always, always out to get you. So one thing our kids is, as we, we watch cartoons, whether movies or, or shows, they, they, they become infatuated quickly with, with bad guys. And so, oh, he's a bad guy. And, and so their world is now seen through a paradigm of, well, who's the bad guy? Right? And, and in the back of their mind, it's as if there's always a bad guy out to get them. So like if they're outside, they're like, someone's going to get us. Or if it's dark outside, they say, a bad guy's going to come. And so, so all that they think is someone's out to get them. Now, that's not helpful for a seven-year-old, right? That, that doesn't help when they're trying to go to bed at night. But for Christians, that is our mindset. There is a bad guy out to get you. He is, whether you realize it or not. And he has destroyed many Many like you. And so don't downplay the fact that there is an enemy and he is ever seeking to devour and destroy the Christian. I mean, the idea here in Ephesians is that the devil is an intelligent being that carefully strategizes and he plans against the church, against God's plan of redemption. He, he seeks to, to strategize against individual believers. He knows you. He knows your strengths and your weaknesses and he knows how, how, to, how to get to you. You are overmatched because you have an enemy and he is a smart enemy who schemes and plans. And the nature of this enemy is why the armor of God and why dependence upon God and his might is necessary. We have an enemy. Look how Paul, Paul reasons there in verse 12. After he just said, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Verse 12, for, here's why you gotta put on the armor of God and fight in his strength. For, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so the war, the, the wrestle, he uses the, the language of wrestle, the struggle, the hand-to-hand -hand combat is not against flesh and blood, Paul says. Your greatest enemy is not a person, not flesh and blood, no human, no human authority, no government, no political party, nor any human proponent of any false religion is your greatest enemy. And in fact, Satan would be pleased if you would identify them as your greatest enemy and not him. We do not wrestle primarily against flesh and blood, Paul says. Instead, positively, we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, 
that are currently over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil. And the picture here that's painted by Paul, this list of spiritual powers, they're not meant to be dissected and classified and ranked. So it's like, okay, well, well, what falls in this category? Okay, well, well what are the, the authorities? Oh, these are the authorities. Here's a list. Okay, what are the cosmic powers? Okay, here, here. They're not meant to be distinguished from each other. It's just uh, they're conveying the idea that Satan has numerous spiritual forces to employ in his attack on you and on the church and on the gospel. And in fact, I think here the final descriptor there in verse 12 is that where he says spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places I think that should be understood as the comprehensive designation for, for all the classes of hostile spirits. So I think, I think the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, the, the spiritual forces is kind of the big picture definition of all that, that, that he's describing here. I think these are all more synonymous than different. I mean, Satan has, has a wide array of ammunition to use. And the point here, verse 12, notice they're evil, forces of evil, Right? That's the description. That's what they are. They're, they're evil. They're anti-God. And they're driven by Satan. And they're in no way friendly to God or the gospel or Christians in this world. They are evil. They seek to kill and destroy and devour. And the picture that Paul's painting here, the reality of life in our world, is that there are spiritual forces of evil. I can't say that enough. They, there are immaterial realities beyond the material and natural world. There are immaterial realities beyond the material and natural world. Things you can't see or touch, but they doesn't mean that they're not real. The spiritual and natural forces are all present in this realm. So we have spiritual activity, spiritual forces at work in this realm. It's not like, oh no, they're only active in a spiritual realm and we're in the natural realm. No, it, the picture that the Bible paints is, is both are active in our world in such a way that spiritual forces can and do affect natural life in this world, right? Satan affects the lives of people in this world, and their lives are actually affected, physically affected. God and Satan are both involved and active in this world, and what Paul wants the Ephesians to see, and what, what we have to see, what we ought to see here, is that the reality of evil forces and powers in the world shouldn't lead to alarm or anxiety, but instead, Paul's whole point it should lead to a dependence upon God and to a standing firm against the evil powers by putting on the armor of God, the whole armor of God. So let me close with, there's three applications. Again, next week, next week we're going to look more specifically at, at this armor, all, all the pieces and how Paul works out putting on the armor of God. But here's three big, broad applications from these verses alone. The first application is simply the call to take sides. The call to take sides, this passage makes perfectly clear that there are two sides in the ongoing spiritual war that's taking place in our world. There are two sides, and they're leaders of each side. And so being strong in the Lord, the call here from this text, fighting in the power of his might, having divine power that enables you to stand against Satan and the forces of evil, requires, hear me, requires union with the crucified and risen Christ. You are either in Christ, having repented of your sins and put your faith in him, or you're on the other side. There are two sides, and everyone is on one or the other. And if you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, you are on the other side. No one is naturally born on God's side. No one is innately born on the right team. We're all born 
on the wrong team. And it's only by repentance and faith in Jesus that we're on the right team, by union with Jesus. And so if you're here this morning, and so this, some of you are here this morning, and you don't realize it, but you are on the wrong side. You are on the side that, that is against God and his gospel in Christ, in the church. Because if you're not united to Jesus by faith alone, if you haven't turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, you are not on God's side. And so the call for you is to change teams, to switch sides. And that happens only through faith in Christ, only through trusting in Jesus, who's been given an authority that is above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and an authority that is above every name that is named, and only in Christ, trusting in him, are you able to be on God's side. And so the application for you, the thing that you should do in response to this message is to put your faith in Jesus. You should now, today. You should change your allegiance. Trust in Jesus. Because you should know the enemies of Christ will not survive in the end. Enemies of Christ will not survive in the end. Jesus and faith in him is the call for some of you this morning. And so put your faith in Jesus. I'd be happy to talk with you afterwards. There's no physical training right, required to switch teams. Simply repentance and faith. So that's the call for some of you to choose sides. The second application is the call to stand. We simply ought to recognize there's a call to stand here in this passage. The tendency for Christians, at least here in the West, in America, is to ignore or downplay the reality and role of Satan and evil forces in this world. That, that's just our natural tendency. That, that's what our world screams. However, this passage affirms that there is a uniquely spiritual dimension of life that needs to be taken seriously. At least it needs to be taken seriously if you want to live a Christian life in this fallen world. I mean, Paul is being immensely practical in his letter. He doesn't all of a sudden get unpractical when he talks about spiritual warfare. He's still on, on, on the, the nitty-gritty of the Christian life of walking worthy of your calling. That's his, that's his point here. He wants them to walk worthy of their calling. And it means waging war and taking seriously the spiritual warfare that's going on. We'll look at it more. We'll look more at it next week when we look at the specifics of the whole armor of God. But, but here we at least need to recognize that we're called to stand against Satan and all spiritual forces of evil. Christians are called to action. One commentator said, and, and I think this is so true, there is a distinct danger for Western Christians to discount or minimize the reality of the supernatural opponents. To do so makes us more vulnerable to their attacks by causing us to be less vigilant less reliant on prayer, less dependent on God. If you don't know there's a battle, you've already lost. And if you think, that's, that's, just a, that's just the mindset of Paul's day. Evil, seriously, we're scientific. We know. We, we, we know better. We're not dumb like Paul. We're advanced. If that's what you think, right, you've already lost. And I think that's why our society is headed the direction it is, because We've, we've ignored the reality of a spiritual war that's going on. And so as Christians, that is, that is not acceptable. We are called to stand against Satan and his, and his helpers, his forces of evil. Well, lastly, the last point of application here, 
I want to end on a good note. In light of this battle, in light of the spiritual war that's going on, the last point of application is simply to recognize that the war has already been won. The war has already been won. And in light of the evil that is present and active, it's easy to become over, overcome or anxious or afraid. So you hear, wow, this, this, this supernatural being and all these forces of evil are against me and out to get me. It's easy to be overwhelmed and anxious. And some people, some people go crazy thinking about and studying these things. That's not Paul's point. He doesn't want you to be preoccupied with Satan. He wants you to remember Satan's been defeated by a greater power. So put on the armor of God. Evil is a reality, even a threat, but there is no reason for alarm or anxiety. God's victory is certain. Sin, Satan, will not win and is not Lord. Did you know there's one Lord? Right? God alone is God. So, so there are things that are true of God that are not true of anything or anyone else in the entire world. All-powerful is one of those. Almighty. So, so Satan is not God. It's not a level playing field. It's really not a fair fight. And that's good news. That's good news. So we, we need not be overcome with fear or anxiety. The war has already be, been won. It's not a fair fight, for the resurrection has already demonstrated the outcome. Did you know that when Jesus rose victorious over, over death and sin, right, that was the final verdict for Satan? He, that's when his head was chopped off. His, his skull was crushed by the seed of the woman, the resurrection was vindication. Yes, it is finished. And now we're just waiting. He, he's, just, he's just wiggling. Right? You know, maybe you've cut off a head of a snake or maybe a worm. Right? And there's still movement afterwards. But, but it's dead. That, that's, that's, that's the state of Satan. The war has been won. We're not standing awaiting the final outcome as if we're not sure of the end. In these verses... We're not urged to win the victory, rather to withstand the devil's insidious wiles and to stand firm. And so that's our call. The victory has been won through Christ, which means that we fight in light of the sure outcome. And so unlike in Braveheart, as, as William Wallace is, is, is leading his forces, they're fighting for their freedom. Right? So they're fighting. If they don't fight, they're going to be conquered and they're going to lose. And so William Wallace says, you guys better get ready. The Christian fights not to win his or her freedom, but because we are already free. We've been freed. We stand strong because God has committed to us. And we stand firm in hope, knowing that God and his strength are for us. So, brother, sister, let us be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let's pray as we close.